the person was interviewed by the elders. The man or woman, doesn't necessarily mention their age, was then asked about their knowledge of Christian doctrine and what they believe, very much like our statement of faith, a summary of Christian doctrine. The elders would then ask about their behavior, which is basically another way of saying, share with us your testimony. When did you come to know the Lord? And what has the Lord done in your life where you have noticed and observed his work of the Spirit in your life? If the elders were concerned about anything they observed in the person's life or or heard concerns or objections from members of the church during the membership process, they would then necessarily begin to call this person's profession of faith into question. In other words, they would inquire more about it. It wasn't just a get them down the aisle as fast as we can kind of approach. They would then have a time for a membership interview where the elders would ask questions to that membership candidate. This would give the opportunity for that membership candidate, if something was said about this particular member that was of concern, an opportunity to share, maybe even confess sin in their life and to get some good pastoral care even up front as they were entering into the membership fold. But this process also was a wonderful way to protect the sheep from wolves in sheep's clothing. Where the person being examined became exposed as a spiritual fraud, a full-blown hypocrite. Someone, when they were confronted about their obvious pattern of unrepentant sin, well, the process got stopped. And the elder said, you need to first repent and believe the gospel for yourself. However, if the person seemed to be a Christian, which was made known through their profession of faith in the gospel and their salvation testimony, then one of the elders would have that person appear before the congregation to share their testimony publicly with the church and then share their beliefs on Christian doctrine. It took about 15 minutes or so, and the congregation that was assembled that evening or that morning, would then have the opportunity to vote on the candidate's membership. If there was a vote in the affirmative, then the person would express their commitment on their end to uphold the church covenant. Aha! CCBC isn't the only church in the world that's ever had a church covenant. A church covenant actually just very similar to ours. And then, at that point, they would become a full member of the local church. Well, friends, take what you just heard there and compare it with the average church today. Maybe the church you grew up in or the church you've spent the most time in. What was that membership process like? Was there a process? Was it a walk down the aisle at the end of the service? Answer one or two questions. Maybe meet with someone at some point the next week. But really, that was it. Was there anything they asked you about what you believe or your testimony or when you were baptized or if you have been baptized and anything like that? Well, friends, truth in advertising, as much as your pastor really wants to be as close to the Bible as I can, the Bible doesn't spell out a precise or detailed instruction manual for what membership 
or the process of church membership was like in the New Testament. I mean, that might shock you, or it may not, but there is no clear, precise process laid out in the Scriptures. So in this case, churches can use Christian freedom here. They can certainly apply biblical principles and wisdom in how they oversee the membership process in their church. So not all churches have to have the same exact process. So I say all that in truth and advertising that whatever examples I give or however we do it here doesn't mean it's the only way it can be done in a local church. But there are more wise ways even more closely biblical ways and lesser biblical ways that you can do this. And those are some of the things that we're going to talk about tonight. If you look with me, look at Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 37. And here's an example, though, though this is not necessarily a membership process in the same way we would understand it maybe today. It's the closest thing I can show us from Scripture of what the early church did when they became a church, who was allowed to be a part of the church as far as a member, and then, I mean, how did the church grow? This would be a really good snapshot for us to consider tonight. Acts 2, verse 37. Now, when they heard this, and just to give you the context, the apostle Peter has just preached the first Christian sermon, He quotes from three Old Testament passages. The Spirit of God comes down. People are riveted. And now we get to verse 37. Now when they heard this, Peter's sermon, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. For the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. So as you look at this passage And even with just a cursory read of the New Testament, a quick, fast, even superficial read of the New Testament, what is clear in the Scriptures is what characterizes a true Christian church. You might not have a specific process in the nitty-gritties of step one, step two, step three, step four, step five, 
But we do see the more obvious fruits, the characteristics, the marks of what would make up the true Christian church. Just a few summary statements here. It was a body of believers. We see right there from Acts chapter 2. Brothers, what shall we do? They want to join in on what the apostles were doing and believing. They were a body of believers who possessed the indwelling presence and power of the Holy Spirit. That's verse 38. Committed to regularly gathering together for edification and worship. They preached the gospel and called sinners to repent and believe. Uh, They baptized those who gave credible or believable professions of faith. Here in Acts 32, did you notice how Luke, the physician, gives us a little more of an organ-like description? He says they were what? Cut to the heart. The old King James, I think, used to say pricked to the heart. I can't remember if they said that in the KJV or not. But either way, it's it's a graphic picture that something is happening deep into the heart of a hardened heart that's now been made new. But this is really just another way of saying they were convicted of their sin. They were stopped in their tracks, and they recognized their need for Jesus. That's why in verse 41, did you notice verse 41? Being cut to the heart, genuinely and truly, would naturally correlate with those who received the word. In other words, this is the New Testament's way of what it meant to be saved, to be born again. They were, you are cut to the heart, and you receive the good news of Jesus Christ into your heart. That's what regeneration is, the supernatural work of God the Spirit pricking your heart and giving you a new one that you didn't have before. The early church partook of the Lord's Supper. They fellowshiped and shared their belongings and finances with one another. Uh, It's not mentioned explicitly here, but as you read throughout the New Testament, they exercised biblical church discipline. So as you read passages like Matthew 18, 1 Corinthians 5, or if you read just a few chapters later, Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira. Listen, there's two ways church discipline can happen. You take serious correcting one another and repenting, or God will strike you down. It's kind of a graphic example. It's quite frightening, but guess what happened? God dropped two hypocrites down, and the church grew. It's pretty amazing. They were afraid, and then God said, boom, this is what happens when you start taking sin serious in your life. And then you'll notice, too, I love how Luke does this in the book of Acts. He shows us that the early church did not have, as Gunnar mentioned earlier, a man-centered view of salvation. It's not just get them saved, get them dunked, and then good luck. No, they trusted in a big and sovereign God to do the saving. They trusted that he had the ability to call their children to himself. And really, anyone else for that matter whenever God sovereignly decided to do so. That's verse 39. But then I just love verse 47. It is a wonderful verse to proof text, God's sovereignty in growing your church. I remember one time uh, being asked at a a Q&A with a church, my first church I was being pastor, man sat right there on the front pew and said, Brother Blake, you see we got a small church. How are we going to grow it? I said, well, Probably the same way God's always grown it. 
We preach, we pray, and we watch what God does. And I just read this text to him, and it was, just, it was done after that. Acts 2, 47, praising God and having favor with all the people, and the who? The Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So the question at hand tonight, I want to provoke us to think about as a church living in the 21st century in the Bible Belt of Fort Smith, Arkansas, is this. Drum roll. Why is church membership so important? What's the big deal? Why does it even matter? And why should we be careful and patient in how we administer baptism to those who are in particularly very young under our care? You know, I hope over the last seven to ten months in following my leadership, hopefully in faithfulness to God's word, each one of us have begun to have our appetites wet for what the importance of church membership is all about. Actually, looking at the Bible and seeing what God says about his church. And if you've thought about it carefully, and I know some of you have, you'll see that membership, church membership, is not merely about being organized. It's not about having an official list of names on a roll. It's not just having a cleaned up directory. That's good, but that's not the essence behind church membership. It's not about dotting our I's. It's not about crossing our T's and comparing our membership roles with another church. And friends, it's not about being legalistic either. It's not about just keeping rules or checking off boxes or appeasing some pastor that has a hobby horse for membership. It's not even about this cult-like mindset that we're going to have such a tight-knit group that nobody else can come in. You know, you somehow get up the ladder, but you pull the ladder up with you as you got in. That's, that's not the mentality of biblical church membership. And friends, I hope you, you've probably picked up through the prayers and the sermons. What we want are the images of the New Testament to blossom in front of us. We're the bride of Christ. We're the people of God. We're the children of light. We are the household with brothers and sisters and moms and dads of the living God. Well, tonight I want to offer a thesis statement. This is the only thing that will be on the screens. Uh, to a topic that I feel isn't considered carefully enough in the life of many churches. It will be on the screen, and then we'll spend the rest of our time unpacking it. And then uh, I'll conclude uh, with a few encouragements and uh, testimonies, and then hopefully take any questions at the end, and we will call it a night. So here's the vision statement of how I hope to lead our church in shepherding children at CCBC. A culture of meaningful church membership begins when members, or with members, having a biblical understanding of conversion and a biblical understanding of church-shaped discipleship. Therefore, patient pastoral care and prudential oversight by the congregation is needed as we shepherd children towards understanding the importance of both. So before we unpack some of this tonight, kids, raise your hands if you can hear me. All right, I want you to shout as loud as you can. Come on, kids. 
Avery, you want to you shout? Say, uh, let's go. Oh, man. Come on, this is the one chance to scream in church and not get in trouble. Come on, kids. I might even have a prize for you later if you do it loud. Woo, there we go. Kids, I'm speaking to you right now. You know why? Because I'm glad you're here. I am happy you are sitting in these chairs tonight. In fact, there's no other place I'd rather you be tonight than in this building. I used to be a kid just like you. Sometimes, ask my wife, I still act like one. I want you to know that it is awesome that you have a mom and dad or grandma and grandpa that bring you to church on Sundays. And I just want you to know your pastor or your parents' pastor or whatever you refer to me as, I understand that it's sometimes hard to come to church. It can sometimes be long and boring. And guess what? There's adults that think that too. But I'm glad you're here. I'm happy you're here. To be honest with you, I'd be sad if I didn't hear kids crying or screaming or running around the building, but not behind the stage, please. Boylston kids. Um, I mean that. Because if you don't hear any crying in the church, you're probably sitting in a dying church. And so kids, I just want you to know Uh, As the man who comes up here and teaches and preaches, uh, I'm so glad you're here. And I want you to know, if you ever have a question for me, or if you want to challenge me at the door and go, Pastor Blake, that's not what the Bible says, I invite your questions. I invite your curiosity. Uh, I will learn something by listening to you. And the one thing I want you to take away from tonight, if you don't hear everything that's said, is this, the best decision you could ever make with your life is following the Lord Jesus Christ. That's my prayer. That's my hope. I hope the Lord has me here for a long time, and I see uh, Simon talking to me about what he's learning in the book of Romans as he's saying, let's go in the back. So kids, I'm glad you're here, and anything you hear tonight, know that you can even ask me or your mom and dad if you have any questions. Parents, I want to speak to you. Listen, parenting is a noble work. And parenting is a very hard work. It's hard because the Lord uses children to expose what we need to work on in our own hearts. Uh, Parenting's hard also because the Bible doesn't give us a step-by-step equation You know, say this prayer, eat this kind of vegetable, and voila, a future CEO of America. It's just not how it works. Some parents do an amazing job in raising their kids, and their kids sometimes have some pretty messed up lives later on. And then there are some whose parents who are very negligent and spiritually disinterested who have genuine Christian kids in the home. So it's not always an apples to apples. Every family's different. Uh, Adults, you remember growing up in your own household, how much your parents have shaped who you are today, both for good and for bad. And so even as you've thought about parenting, I'm sure the way you were parented has affected your parenting as well. And I just want to encourage, especially parents with young children in here, you're probably doing a better job than you think you are. 
So be encouraged. The Lord sees. The Lord knows. He understands. He is compassionate. He knows when you can't get any sleep three nights in a row, that you're getting woken up in the middle of the night, that you lose your temper, that you don't feel like you're the best mom or best dad you can be. The Lord's grace covers us even in our weaknesses and failures as parents. So I hope tonight you would be encouraged, and even grandparents, as you take care of the little ones as well from time to time, know that your role as a grandma or grandpa is very significant as well in the development of our children. Also, guys, you would have received this week earlier a uh, fairly lengthy paper I wrote last summer, last fall, on the topic of baptism, church membership, and how that relates to young children. I gave that mostly to parents who had children still in the home, but I decided to go ahead and give it to the whole church, especially now we're about seven months in and we're developing a culture here and membership is beginning to take off. And I think it would be important to touch on a very important topic that can become very sensitive and sometimes even divisive in some circles. So what I'm going to do tonight, I'm going to offer four points I want to make tonight to add color to this vision for shepherding children at CCBC. I'm going to create some scenarios of common questions I've had parents ask me by answering the best I can on the spot without any nuancing because every family is going to be different. And then I'm going to have two married couples come and give brief testimonies about how the Lord has taken what you've heard in previous sermons, the paper I've written, and their own study of Scripture, and how the Lord has somewhat reshaped and redirected how they think about shepherding their own children. So these are not on the screen. I wasn't able to get these uh, in time, but if you want to write these down or re-listen to it, you can. I've got four points, four kind of fence posts that will help our church think biblically about this. Number one, at CCBC, we want to promote a church culture where Christian nominalism is rare. At CCBC, we want to promote a church culture where Christian nominalism is rare. What is Christian nominalism? It just simply means being a Christian in name only. It's just a thing that you assent to, kind of like Christmas or Easter or your favorite Hallmark holiday. You, Oh, yeah, 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 I, I like that day. I, I like that guy. I I have these fuzzies when I think about growing up at church as a young child. But for whatever reason, their life has never shown any genuine fruit. It's an empty profession of faith. There's really no obvious experience that God has gotten a hold of their life. There's no repentance. There's no faith. There's no obedience. In fact, if you compare them to the average Christian, they they actually seem to be doing the very opposite of what following Jesus would look like. A few biblical passages to think about Christian nominalism and how we don't want that to be the norm at our church is Matthew 7, verses 21 to 23. Luke 6, verse 46. Titus 1, verse 16. James 2, verses 14 to 17. And then really, the whole book of 1 John. So you can use that as a Bible study. I don't need to quote the text. The whole letter will do you good. R.C. Sproul once made an excellent, and I would love this vocabulary to begin to reshape how we use these phrases at our church. R.C. Sproul 
made an excellent distinction here between having a profession of faith versus a possession of faith. Do you hear the distinction there? A profession of faith, something I say I have, versus a possession of faith, something that is empirically, uh, verifiably true. This is what he says. If someone makes a profession of faith, yet shows no fruit of it whatsoever, there was no real conversion. We are justified not by a profession of faith, but by the possession of faith. Where faith is true, the fruit of that faith begins to appear immediately. It is impossible for a converted person to remain unchanged. The very presence of the new nature, the presence and power of the indwelling Holy Spirit indicates that we are indeed changed and a changing people. It's a good distinction there. Profession of faith versus a possession of faith. As I've mentioned previously, we want to promote a culture here in this church where decisionism is not the emphasis. As you know, we don't have an organized three-minute emotionally appealing altar call at the end of our services. You know why? I can give you a few reasons why. One, it adds three more minutes to our service. Or it takes away three minutes from my sermon. Might not be a bad idea for some. My wife laughs. But I think altar calls have psychologically tricked people's thinking that walking down the aisle equates coming to Jesus. Brothers and sisters, Jesus isn't standing at the end of the aisle for you to walk to. Jesus says, confess your sins and call upon me wherever you're at. Coming forward can be a wonderful thing just to give someone access to talk to someone, but it's no different than talking to the pastor standing at the door right there. We're talking 20 feet. I'm not talking salvation. And so what I want to do in creating a culture here at CCBC where we're not focused on decisionism, one time in my life I made a decision, wrote down my name on a card, the pastor signed my Bible, or I said a sinner's prayer. We want to de-emphasize a one-time decision and re-emphasize walking with Jesus for the rest of your life, a lifestyle. A daily dying to self. Again, think about the parable of the sower. The seed went out amongst different types of soil. One fell along the path. Satan came, grabbed the seed, went in one ear, went out the other. No change. One seed fell upon the thorns. Fell amongst the thorns and really just through the thick of time, the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things quenched the word and it just doesn't bear much fruit. There's those whose seeds fall amongst rocky soil. Immediately they receive it with joy. There's excitement. There might even be an emotional experience. There might even be tears. There might even be excitement at a church camp or a conference. But it says in due time they fall away because of persecution or some type of opposition on account of the word. But there is one type of soil that the seed goes forth and it falls upon. And Jesus says that it yields fruit 30-fold, sometimes 60-fold, sometimes 100-fold. The point of the parable is this. The evidence of whether or not you really receive the word of God 
is are you bearing fruit? And are you bearing fruit that lasts? Not all Christians will bear the same amount of fruit. And not all Christians will bear the same amount of fruit in the same speed. But all Christians will bear lasting fruit. What's our goal at CCBC for church membership? You remember this, I hope. We want to move people from being once a week church attenders to seven days a week Christ followers. We don't want to build Chaffee Crossing Country Club. We want to see Christ build up Chaffee Crossing Baptist Church, a church that reflects his character and proclaims his word. Number two, at CCBC, I want us to have a biblical understanding of church-shaped discipleship. A biblical understanding of church-shaped discipleship. That means when someone is considering joining our church, they are simultaneously submitting to the spiritual authority and accountability of that local congregation. With King Jesus as head of his church, he's the ultimate CEO. He's the top one in authority. Jesus has entrusted biblically qualified men to serve as elders or pastors or under-shepherds who lead his church. And therefore, we should view our Christian walks in light of the church-shaped discipleship plan he has given his people. Yes, you'll still have your personal quiet times. Yes, you and your friends from other churches can study the Bible together. Yes, you can listen to better preachers on other podcasts. But when you join a local church, you are signing up to hold other believers accountable to their walks with Jesus and... You are granting other Christians open permission to hold you accountable to your walk with Jesus. It's a a both-and relationship. You see, when you join a local church, you are submitting to the discipleship program Jesus came up with. Not Lifeway, not any other publisher for that matter. Number three. At CCBC, I want us to have a biblical understanding of family-shaped discipleship. A biblical understanding of family-shaped discipleship. In other words, a husband and a wife, and especially if they have children in the home, are to see their first ministry for King Jesus in their home. The church exists to equip the saints for the work of ministry, which certainly includes encouraging husbands and wives and Moms and dads. However, parents are given the primary charge from God to teach, lead, and provide for their children who are under their roof. That means this. Kids are to obey their parents in the Lord. Ephesians 6, 1 to 3. Uh, They are to honor and respect the leadership that Jesus has given, given them as their parents watch over them in their home. However, if a child, and at this point, just for the sake of the sentence, I'm going to use the word child as anyone that's under 18 years old, a minor, someone still dependent, living with another older person, joins a local church, they now come under a second sphere of spiritual authority in their lives, and that's the local church. You see, moms and dads have a sphere of authority from King Jesus, It's a gift from the Lord, and parents should realize this as early as possible. 
Parents should never shove off their role as parents to a WANA's program or the catechism on Wednesday night or another pastor. No, it's a parent's responsibility to disciple their children. Uh, however, once that child, uh, whether they're 17 or 12, joins a local church where they are baptized in Christ's name, they're also now committing to submit under the authority of the local church. The oversight of parents has the sphere of the home, and the oversight of the congregation is given to the elders, and really by extension, the congregation as a whole. Number four, at CCBC, any delay we show towards baptizing children is a decision out of patience and prudence, but not in any way hindering a child's salvation. Let me say that again. Any delay, any pause we show towards baptizing children is a decision out of patience and prudence, but not in any way hindering them from their salvation. I don't know if you've ever picked up on this, but Paul, when he was having to drive a stake into a divided church that really were putting all their stock in things that were less important than the gospel, they were elevating it above the gospel. Notice what Paul says about the relationship between baptism and the gospel and how Paul had to realign their priorities. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 14 to 17 He says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did not baptize also the household of Stephanus. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. Listen to 1 Corinthians 1.17. I love this text. He says, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Now listen, Paul wasn't downplaying the importance of baptism. He certainly baptized people. He taught people what Jesus taught the apostles to do. But Paul is certainly, at least in this moment, elevating the gospel and its power above baptism in this moment. He cares more about the Corinthians being born again than being baptized in some body of water. See, baptism is still important for a whole host of reasons, as I tried to convey in the paper I sent out. If you weren't able to read it, check it out this week. But again, I just want to make this point. A child's salvation isn't hinging on whether they go down into the baptismal waters or not. We're not Roman Catholic. We're not Church of Christ. We don't believe there's some kind of efficacious grace flowing through the priesthood to wash away your child's original sin. That's heresy. That's a false gospel. We don't believe that. Justification by faith alone in Christ alone. Baptism doesn't save anyone of their sins. It's a picture, a visible graphic, and a celebratory symbol of what God has done for us in Christ. Now, brothers and sisters, there are going to be certainly times, let me just say this, and I'm making sure this is on recording so that people can understand what I mean by the importance of delaying and what it doesn't mean. There will certainly be times where adults are baptized 
and brought into the membership at Chaffee Crossing Baptist Church, and later it's revealed they were deceived. They weren't actually Christians. Their lack of fruit or the lack of repentance in their life eventually becomes very evident to basically everyone. So we're not claiming that in joining the church, me or the elders or the deacons or the congregation has x-ray vision with perfect clarity like the Holy Spirit does. I can tell you, I pray a lot and I read a lot, but I'm not the fourth person of the Trinity. There's no vacancy there. I nor you can see into anyone's soul with that type of clarity. Uh, Judas Iscariot tricked everyone except Jesus. In the New Testament, there are people who deceived everyone until they were found out. So church membership in this process does not protect our church from non-Christians being exposed later in time. But there are dangers, brothers and sisters, both for adults and young children, of baptizing prematurely or hastily, uh, pressuring your children to make a decision like, it's your birthday, we got to get a cake. Well, you, you said a prayer, we got to get you in the water. Friends, that's not, that's not what baptism is about. We have to think carefully about when you are baptized in Christ's name, you are baptized into his body. This is a serious matter. It's a weighty matter. And, and it's one that a young child shouldn't have to learn to bear psychologically, emotionally, at such a young age. So common questions that have been asked to me uh, or I'll kindly just say accused, maybe, I'm not sure, but ways that I anticipate pushback, and I I welcome the pushback. My child uh, was baptized from a previous church, but they're not a member here at CCBC. Do I encourage them to take the Lord's Supper here? It's a good, it's a fine question. Other churches in the River Valley, probably 95% of them, probably will not practice the same prudence and delay on baptism that I hope to lead our church to do. It's a fine question. Well, the answer to that question, I would say ordinarily, no. You should not encourage your young child to take the Lord's Supper if they're not a member of a local church. Let me explain. In 1 Corinthians 10 and 11, Paul talks on the Lord's Supper. It's the most extensive treatment he ever has on the Lord's Supper. But it's in the context of writing to people who he already assumes have been baptized. And when he writes about when they take the Lord's Supper, it says, when you come together as a church. Ordinarily, Christians should only take the Lord's Supper with a church and as a church. Not in your RV, not at a wedding or a funeral, not at a pastor's conference, not even you and your wife trying to be romantic and... Solomon at the same time. I'm not sure. That'd be kind of strange. But the point is, the Lord's Supper is an ordinance of the church. And it should be administered to those who have put on the team jersey, baptism, and they're under the discipline and authority of that local congregation. So I would say there's probably some nuanced stuff I could work through, but I would say ordinarily I would discourage that practice until your child is ready for church membership. Another one, my seven-year-old tells me they want to ask Jesus into their heart. Pastor Blake, what 
on earth do I say? That's a great question, right? Avery, you're seven. Noah's nine. Titus is three. I understand that question. I'm very sensitive to that one. I think the first thing you need to do is rejoice. You better lean up out of your couch, put down the remote control. If your child is showing any interest in Jesus, you better pay attention to that. That's something to uh, snap out of your days and start paying attention to. That's encouraging. That's better than A's on your report card or a great football game. No, you're talking about Jesus. You got my attention. Be encouraging, but ask questions. Don't interrogate the child, but just ask more about what do you mean? Tell me about that. Don't popishly declare them safe or automatically tell them, yes, you are one of us. And it's perfectly fine to pray with your child. It's perfectly fine to tell them and model for them what confession of sin can look like. That's how they learn. But friends, a sinner's prayer might be used as a means by which we express what God is doing in our hearts to receive Christ. But a sinner's prayer is not a magical formula. It's not some kind of hypnotizing words we just sprinkle over our children and voila, they're Christian. Reciting words after an evangelist or a pastor or a mom doesn't make anyone a Christian. Faith is the instrument for our justification, but it's the Spirit who gives life. So parents, here would be my kind of back pocket suggestions. You can re-listen to this sermon to remember them. Number one, ask your child leading and open-ended questions. Do not do the yes and no stuff. Of course they're going to answer in the affirmative most of the time. So what did you ask when you asked Jesus to do for you? What did you ask him to do? What do you mean by come into your heart? Uh, look at some of the other questions that I have in the back of the pamphlet I sent out. I've actually got some books here. I'm going to offer up anybody that wants some of further questions you can ask your child who's showing interest in Jesus. So just ask them, what do you mean? Why do you want Jesus to come into your heart? What do you want him to do to your heart? Second, pray with them. Read promises from Scripture like John 3.16, John 5.24, Ephesians 2.1-10. Don't put all the weight on a sinner's prayer. Put all the weight on the Word of God. Number three, encourage them towards daily prayer themselves. Use as a model what we do here on Sunday morning. Prayers of adoration, prayers of confession, prayers of thanksgiving, prayers of supplication. Teach your children from as early as you can how Jesus taught his own disciples to pray. Number four, ask questions during family devotions. Family devotions can be a train wreck. You might have to cancel them half the time because it just doesn't work out as you had planned. I don't have a clue what that feels like. But friends, it doesn't have to be long. You don't have to have 25 points and illustrations. Just one little nugget to chew on, ask a few questions and survive can be helpful. Uh, ask questions after the sermon, Sunday morning, Sunday night, or after the catechism teaching on Wednesday night. Have your child think about what they've heard. If they're showing spiritual interest in Jesus, well, the Spirit will give them what? It'll give them ears to hear. They'll show interest, even as a child, in knowing the Lord. 
And lastly, as parents, here's the gold nugget wisdom you've probably been waiting all night for. Come on, Pastor Blake, there's got to be more. Pray for your children. Be patient. And wait on God. Pray for your children. Be patient. And wait on the Lord. The paper I sent out this past week, on the very last two pages, there's a a, a red, yellow, and green spectrum that kind of gives you a feel for how I'm trying to help us think about how do we handle uh, varying degrees of ages and their interest in Christ. You can look more about that further. Um, If you're interested, uh, there is another author, a member of our church, gave me a copy of theirs last summer. I didn't know anyone actually had the courage, boldness, and conviction to write on this topic, and I found one person so far outside of my own tribe. It's called Your Child's Profession of Faith by Dennis Gunderson. It helps you think through how do you shepherd your children towards knowing the Lord and to do so patiently and not hastily. It's not a very like, well-known book, but I haven't read every single word, but I've read most of it to get the gist that it's fairly sound. So anyone interested, your child's profession of faith, they have three copies. If you want to look more into this for your own family or curiosity, three copies. Jansen? Jason? And Adam. Now, Adam, you've got a copy of this. It was your wife who gave it to me. <laughs> I'm not going to tell her that. Yeah, Angie's got a copy. Got one more. It's really helpful. Jeff in the back. Thank you. All right, I've got two married couples that are going to come up now. And uh, it's a little more just like a testimony um, to share what the Lord has taught them on this topic. So Alan and Sandy Williams and Julie and Brad O'Brien, you can come on up. Uh, I've asked each of them primarily because in the course of the last year, when I began teaching on this topic, uh, I just waited to see if anyone shared if they would have done anything differently in their parenting or maybe not differently, but a new light's been shed on this whole topic. Uh, Again, this is not... Uh, to be the only way a church can do this. I want you to know churches can uh, charitably disagree on how they shepherd children towards baptism and membership. But here at CCBC, we do want to be intentional in everything we do. And so I thought, well, aside from hearing me or getting books, you can hear real human beings who are members of our church beside myself. So Alan and Sandy, you want to come on up. And uh, how long you guys have been married? Speak loud and clear until the... 30 years. 30 years. I hope y'all celebrated 30 recently. Yes. In January. There we go. How many kids do you have? Seven. Seven children. I probably need to be sitting right there right now. (laughs) Um, And how old are the children? From 23 to 5. Okay, so he's got a wide spectrum there of 5 to 23. So Alan's going to share a little bit. And then Julie and Brad are going to do the same. And then any questions that you have for me or for them is going to be free game. And then we will close for the evening. So take it away, Alan. All right. I'm just encouraging. I'm just Sandy and I's perspective on delaying the baptism of children has certainly been changed through the teaching we have received over the past year. In fact, delaying baptism was not a phrase we had spoken 
the default mindset has been get them saved as fast as you can. That pattern of thinking has been challenged by a careful examination of salvation itself. Salvation is only of God. Sandy and I believe that we have lost sight of that and unwittingly usurped the role that only God can fill. Our zeal as Christian parents to see our children follow Christ is certainly well-intentioned. We all should desire this earnestly for our children, but this zeal can, at times, cloud our judgment. As stated in Proverbs 19.2, desire without knowledge is not good, and whoever makes haste with his feet misses his way. The realization that salvation is a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit to regenerate the heart of an unbeliever, a child or an adult, is so foundational to truly entrusting our children to the Lord. John 1, 12, and 13 has been especially helpful in this understanding. Those verses read as, as such. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Verse 13 is such a perfect description of true conversion. <clears throat> Our children are not saved by being born into a Christian family, not of blood, or by the genuine desire of their parents, the will of the flesh, or by our Baptist tradition, the will of man. But true conversion is only the sovereign grace of God to make alive a dead heart and bring conviction of sin that leads to repentance and faith. It is quite easy for children raised in Christian homes and that regularly attend church to have an intellectual understanding of Jesus and have a strong affection for him. They hear often of the love of Christ. So it is, a, it is a logical conclusion even for a child to desire to please God in order to obtain that love. But if there is no understanding of sin and its deadly consequences, then we as parents must be cautious to affirm that our child has been truly regenerated, rushing them into baptismal waters in order to satisfy the anxiety of our hearts to see our children saved is actually one of the most harmful things we can do for the souls of our children. Giving them a false assurance that their salvation is credible before we see an actual change in their life is really an attempt to satisfy our own desire. Looking back at our approach to how we counseled our oldest two children, we would have been much more careful to discern their understanding of sin uh, we lean too heavily on their articulation of the events of salvation. They could speak about Jesus' death on the cross, the burial, the resurrection, all the things, the love of Jesus, and then accepting him as Savior. They could say all that. But later in their teen years, both experienced doubts that their conversion was genuine. Bottom line is that we must trust God to work. We cannot rush him along. We must surrender our will to his. We must be faithful to teach our children the whole counsel of God, that there is judgment for sin, and that holy God is justified in his anger over that sin. We must recognize also that delaying baptism is not 
delaying salvation. True conversion can take place at any age as God so desires and works. The delay is needed for us as parents to observe and confirm that a true change in thoughts and behavior of our child has taken place. We want to see in our children a true desire for righteousness and obedience to the commands of God. We must be discerning if a child's behavior is bearing the fruit of a truly repentant heart or is simply outward obedience to please the parents. Time is needed to properly observe patterns of behavior in our children. Waiting is never easy, and especially when it concerns our children. This, too, is a test of our faith that what God is doing in the heart of our children will be confirmed. And we must come to believe that the delay of baptism does not delay the salvation of our child. The second aspect of the prudence of delaying baptism for children is the responsibility of being a church member. The authority given to the church by Jesus is written in Matthew 16, verse 18 through 19, and chapter 18, 15 through 20 is a great and awesome responsibility. This aspect of church membership is something that we have never been taught and certainly not experienced in our Baptist life. But we do believe it to be the true counsel of God's word, which certainly overrides the traditions of church practice. So given the weight of responsibility of membership in God's church, a young child simply lacks the maturity to properly participate in carrying out those responsibilities. As Proverbs clearly states, foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. So delaying baptism in order to continue to instruct a child in God's word just seems logical and wise. Observing the attitudes and actions of our children for evidence of a true desire to obey God's word and follow righteousness is the duty of a Christian parent. The church family has that responsibility also to help the parents by observing the life pattern of the child and reproving, affirming, and encouraging the credible fruit of salvation. Thanks. Thank you, Alan and Sammy. Julie and Brad. So have you all made it to the 30-year mark yet? Almost, 29, 28, 29. 29. Got, all right, almost there. And how old's Connor? He's 20. 20 years old, so he's at a U of A. Mm-hmm. So Brad and Julie, you want to share a little bit? Sure will. Julie recently shared uh, with our pastor a Steve Larson, I'm sorry, a Steve Lawson broadcast titled Irresistible Call, A New Heart, along with a text she sent to him that read, I wish I'd have heard this as a parent when Connor was young and we were counseling him about salvation. I think it would have calmed anxiety and a hurriedness we felt about baptism. So I hope it does that for CCBC young parents. This doctrine of grace like all of them, give such rest and comfort in God's sovereignty, knowing that when he is saving, man can't stop it or prevent it, whether intentionally or unintentionally. His sheep will come to him. And then about 15 minutes later, Blake sends us both a test asking us if we'd show up tonight and share a testimony. So be careful with those. You know, parenting often humbles us and can cause us to feel inadequate on any given day. But praise God, we can take comfort in God's word, especially in Romans 8, 28, that reminds us 
all things work together for good to them who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. The Lord takes all of our parenting, even every failure, and he folds it into his sovereignty so that his will is accomplished. But still, in looking back at parenting and shepherding our child, there are many things that we would do differently if we only knew then what we know now. We specifically would evangelize differently and seek to delay our sons pursuing baptism and church membership immediately after coming under conviction and praying to receive Christ. So let's look at how we would do it differently. We would be very, very patient. We would wait on the Lord. We would teach more about repentance, about godly sorrow versus worldly sorrow over sin, and more of who God is. And we would give much time, even years, to looking for fruit in keeping with repentance, as recorded in Matthew 3.8. And when our son was young, we, like I assume all of you, had and still have as our greatest desire to know that he, had, he has been saved and that he walks in truth. But frankly, we, we had an unbiblical view of salvation. We saw it as man-centered and, man and a man-initiated decision to be made as soon as God called you, believing that if you didn't accept him at that moment, then you may have missed your opportunity. Although we probably would not have verbalized it in that way, that's really what our actions revealed. We followed the prescription or this prescribed tradition of helping our child pray a prayer, make a public profession of faith the next Sunday during the altar call, and then be baptized the following Sunday. At that time, our understanding of salvation come, or came from our own upbringing and how we were evangelized, the church, the church culture that we were a part of, and even Christian parents we looked up to to set examples for us. But what we weren't really looking towards is what God's word says about salvation. So that's the how, but why would we do it differently? simply because the sovereignty of God and his grace. Over the past decade, the Lord has mercifully been changing our views of salvation by teaching us from his word that he alone is sovereign in salvation. Some, uh, some passages that are especially meaningful to us include Psalm 3.8 that says salvation belongs to the Lord, and of course Ephesians 2.8 and 9 that reminds us that salvation is a work of grace whereby God gives the gift of faith. Here's a further list of some important scriptures for us. Ephesians 1, 3 through 6 declares that salvation is the plan of God from eternity past, whereby the Father has chosen a people for his Son and adopted them and made them acceptable in Christ. And in Ezekiel 36, 25 through 29, God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanlessness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey them. Jesus declared the certainty of his chosen people's salvation in John 10, 1 through 5, saying, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in another way, that man is a thief and a robber. 
But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. And in John 6, 37-39, Jesus said, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. And lastly, Philippians 1.6 reassures us that when God begins the good work of salvation in us, he is faithful to complete it. And then we have Romans 8.29-30 through 30 that assures us that the golden chain of his sovereign work of salvation will not be broken. So for Julie and I, the sovereignty of God and his grace and salvation gives us the hope and patience we desperately need to wait on the Lord to do the inward work of the heart to save our child and anyone else for whom we are praying for salvation. We better understand that sanctification and repentance should be observed over time, knowing the process of sanctification is often slow and tedious, and that time is needed to observe the true repentance in a new believer, especially a child who may act out of a desire to please his parents or respond to peer pressure. According to scripture, God not only saves from the penalty of sin and justification, but he also frees us from the power of sin and conforms us to the image of his son. In Matthew 3, 8, John the Baptist says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And we now see the wisdom in giving much time, even years, in the life of a child to observe if he or she is truly repentant and growing spiritually. And we ask ourselves, is faith that's not tested true faith? When our son was young, he, uh, we, like most of you, gave great energy to shielding him from much of the world we live in. There were many difficult things that he didn't experience, either because of our protection or just because of his young age. Life was pretty good for him as he grew up. But the day came when he began driving himself to high school, and then he moved off to college. He began making his own decisions and experienced trials and disappointment. Our children will eventually put their own faith to the test. And it's during a time of testing such as this that the possession of saving faith can be more easily observed. James 1, 2, and 3 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And James 2, 14 through 26 explains that a true saving faith is evidenced by works, and if faith lacks works, it is dead, and therefore the one professing is still dead. He uses the sober example in that passage that even the demons believe and shudder. And when Julie and I consider our own salvation story, knowing that we, both of us, and many of our Christian friends have been baptized more than once because we realized we got it out of order, we now see the wisdom in delaying baptism. We believe that it would give anyone, but especially a child, more clarity in their faith as they age and do much to prevent confusion and doubts 
in hindsight as their faith is tested. So brothers and sisters, how we do church and how we administer the church ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper matters. It reveals our view of who God is and how he alone saves by his grace. Guys, tonight I hope one of the biggest things you take away from tonight is the significance and importance that we have to preach the good news to anyone, regardless of their age, to tell people that following Jesus is the most important thing to do in their life, but also to think about that kind of church-shaped discipleship of how we can best do that in a patient way as we shepherd people towards a more biblical understanding of conversion and following Christ. I'm going to end with some prayer, and then feel free to come and ask questions or hang out. Let's pray. Father, we come before you tonight. We do thank, thank you for your word. Lord, each one of us have had different ways that we were raised, whether in the home or in the church. Lord, a lot of times new things like this uh, cause us to have to wrestle with and think through things in ways that maybe we never have before. Lord, I pray that regardless of wherever we're at, that tonight we will glory in the good news of Christ, that we will encourage and evangelize and instruct all that you bring into our life, including only our children, of course. Lord, I pray that CCBC would be a place where this is an atmosphere of love and truth and where each one of us can help follow Jesus more faithfully. Lord, we thank you for this good Lord's Day. Lord, we pray that you received honor and glory for what was said and done. In Jesus' name, amen. You're dismissed.